Well, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving. We are so glad to have you here with us and seeing so many faces from out of town. Welcome home. Uh, For those of you that are just here with us the first time, welcome home as well. We are so glad to have you here at First Baptist Church, and we do pray that uh, you will have a good experience here this morning and that you will hear from the Lord in all the ways that you need to hear from Him. I do want to say thank you for the youth and to Josh for arranging all of that craziness. Um, I've been telling people this morning, everybody's like, hey, I like the sweater, and I do too, so thank you, um, that I came subdued today, and, and for those that know me, this is subdued for the Christmas season. I was looking at those Christmas suits this morning thinking, it's time, but I decided to bring it back a little bit, and then I get here, and I didn't bring it back a little bit because my face with my Grinch sweater is all over the place, so uh, thank you for that. It is good to be with you this morning, though, and it is good to be in the Christmas season, uh, in this season where we can talk about Jesus. And for those of you who weren't with us last week, uh, we are in a a series that is actually uh, contrary to what the, the, uh, this is just meant to like calm people's nerves, that the title of the series is actually Finding Christ in Xmas. And the reason that we're doing that is we talked last week about the historic background of the X in Xmas, that it's actually not an X, it is a Chi, which is the first letter in the name of Jesus in the Greek alphabet. And we are reclaiming that symbol, that the Cairo is a Christian symbol, and it's not a removal of Christ, but it is a reminder for us that Christ is in the very center of Christmas, and that he is the X that marks the spot, that in the midst of all of the other amazing things, which I love, that Christ is the true treasure of Christmas. And so as we go through these weeks, we're going to be looking at the different stories of the Christmas narrative and exploring exactly who and what Christ is for us, what his coming means to us. Last week, we looked at Christ and the very definition of that name, the the. It's not actually a name, it's a title, that Jesus is the Christ. It's not Jesus Christ with Christ being his last name, that it is Jesus the Christ, that he is the king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised ruler on whom the government, the weight of the government will rest on his shoulders and he won't collapse and he will bring about the the peace and the justice that we so desperately need in this world. Last week we looked at Christ as our king, searching for a king. This week, we're going to look at Christ as our savior, searching for a savior. And as we get started, I want to ask you a question. It's a question that I asked around the office this week and to some of my family. If an alien were to land on our planet today, which in, with recent news articles and things is not all that unlikely, but if an alien were to land on our planet today and they were to stay over the course of the next 30 plus days and they were to observe our Christmas holiday and our Christmas celebration and all of the different things that we do, what would be their major takeaway? Someone who's never seen the reality of this planet but understands humanity and they watched us celebrate the Christmas season, what would be their major takeaway? What would they believe that the Christmas holiday is actually all about? Now, I want to clarify. I don't want you to give me the churchy answer and say, oh, they'd think it's about Jesus because they wouldn't. 
let's be honest, right? If they observe the Christmas holiday, and we'll be specific, we'll, we'll narrow the field, right? We'll do the academic exercise and bring it there. We are just talking about in the Western American context. If they were to watch and see all of the insanity of our Christmas season, what would they think is at the center of the Christmas season? What is it all about? Not a rhetorical question. Shopping, presents, money, what else? Decorations, food, Santa Claus. God loves Santa Claus. Punching heretics since the earliest days. That's a conversation for a different day, but yes. Anything else? Gatherings, family and friends, anything else? Well, that's, that's good. That's a good representation. Did you notice what the first things mentioned were, though? They were all in the same realm. We got money, right? Didn't you have to say any words? Just lifted the hand and was like, money. It's all about commercialism, right? It's all about commercialism. It's all about gifts. It's all about presents. It's all about what we get in the season. I would, I would agree with that. Arguments could be made for several legitimate options of what an alien would think is the center of the Christmas season. But when we unwrap the outer layers and get to the very center of the holiday, we actually get to the day of Christmas. What, what is the pinnacle? Is it not the giving and receiving gifts? The unwrapping of presents? Isn't that what all the songs and everything points towards in, in the broader culture? It is all about gathering around the tree with family and friends and celebrating and eating. But, be, but the thing that everyone's really looking forward to is the presence. And numerous Christmas movies highlight and lament this well-documented fact that presence and gifts and commercialism has become the center of the Christmas holiday. One scene in particular from a Charlie Brown Christmas captures the dominant ideology of our age concerning Christmas. And mind you, this was written and 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 uh, filmed decades ago, right? But it still holds true today. And one scene in particular popped into my mind when I was thinking about it. So I want us to take a, look, a minute to watch this scene this morning as we go into the sermon. What's this? Find the true meaning of Christmas when money, 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 spectacular, super colossal, neighborhood Christmas lights and display contest. Lights and display contest? Oh no! My own dog gone commercial. I can't stand it. Oh. I've been looking for you, big brother. Will you please write a letter to Santa Claus for me? Well, I don't have much time. I'm supposed to get down to the school auditorium and direct a Christmas play. You write it and I'll tell you what I want to say. Okay, shoot. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How is your wife? I have been extra good this year. So I have a long list of presents that I want. Oh, brother. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. 
Just send money. How about tens and twenties? Tens and twenties? Oh, even my baby sister. All I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Did you catch the line at the end? Right, we know that the movie Charlie Brown is upset with the commercialism and he's trying to find out what is Christmas all about. And at every turn, he's reminded about gifts. We could have played an earlier scene where Lucy is counseling Charlie about his seasonal depression and she believes that his seasonal depression actually comes from the fact that, she, that he, like she, never gets what he really wants for Christmas. And that's the reason that he's down for Christmas. But this scene is the one that really gets me. She says, all I want is what I've got coming to me. All I want is my fair share. What a poignant and revealing statement. If we're honest, many of us can relate to Sally's sentiment. Perhaps the thoughts were more prominent when we were children, but who among us hasn't opened their gifts or looked at the presents under the tree and failed to find the present that we most desired and walked away believing that somehow we had been cheated, that somehow we had been wronged, that with all of these gifts, that not getting that one thing, we'd been good all year long, good all year long, and somehow we didn't get the thing we really wanted. And much like Sally, we would say, all I want is what I've got coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Like Sally, and like much of our Western culture, we have been led to believe that Christmas is transactional. That if we are good girls and good boys, that we will get good things. And not just that we will get good things, but that we in fact deserve and are entitled to good things because of our good behavior. That if we do what we're supposed to do, that somehow that means that we are deserving. Christmas, however, is not about getting what we want or what we deserve. Rather, I would say that Christmas is the farthest thing from that. That at its core, Christmas is about God coming to earth to in fact avert giving us what is fair. To avert giving us what we deserve. And instead to do the difficult work of bringing about what we need through his grace. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and starting in verse 18. Matthew 1 starting in verse 18. And it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You know, normally when we read this passage and we we talk about Joseph, we talk about noble Joseph. We talk about Joseph, the, the righteous, Joseph, the one who was faithful to God, the one who was faithful to the law. Joseph, we might say, is like the ideal child in the Christmas songs who watched out and didn't pout and didn't cry and did the right things and deserved the good gifts because he was a good boy. But Joseph doesn't get what he wants. Joseph doesn't get what he's worked for. Joseph doesn't get what he's planned and waited so long for. Again, the point that we see over and over again throughout the Christmas narrative and throughout the Gospels, not just the Christmas story, but but what comes from it as we look at the life of Jesus and the intent of his work and, and what his purpose was and his plan was on earth. One of the things that we notice time and time again is that Jesus didn't come to give us what we want or deserve. Jesus did not come to make you prosperous. I know there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff out there. I even actually heard it on, this, on the radio this morning on my way, way in. Don't know who the pastor was. Never met him before in my life. Have nothing bad to say about him. But I was, I was disturbed by what I heard him say. He said, God wants you to live your best life now. And maybe that's true in some regard. But as he explained, the intent behind that is that God wants you to have the good life, Right? That God wants you to have good things. That God doesn't want you to to struggle. That God doesn't want you to suffer. But as we've talked about here at this church over and over again, Jesus promised that we would have struggles. Jesus promised that we would have suffering. Paul, if there was a good man after his conversion, it was Paul. And Paul had a hard time from beginning to end. Timothy had, he even tells Timothy, Timothy, join me in suffering. That leads me to believe that that Jesus, that Christ's coming is not about undoing the difficulty of life. It's not about mitigating the bad situations of life, but giving us the strength and giving us what we need to live in the midst of what this world actually is. And yes, it's true that Jesus came to redeem all of creation, but in the meantime, there's a lot of mess we got to live with, isn't there? Jesus didn't come to give us what we want or deserve. Again, as we look at the story of Christmas, we consider here in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph, in fact, did not get what he wanted or what he worked for that first Christmas season. Joseph and Mary, for that matter, wanted to get married and they wanted to start a family. Right? Is that not the core of the story? That they were, that, that they were betrothed, that they were, that they were already technically married in the, the eyes of the law. First century Jewish weddings happened in two stages. 
The, the first stage was the betrothal, or what is called in Hebrew the urisin. The urosin. I can't say the word right, man. I'm not Hebrew. E R U S I N. Arusin. There we go. That's how we're going to pronounce it today, right? So that was the first stage of the marriage. It was the betrothal. Joseph's family would, would give a mohar or a dowry as it's better known to Mary's family. There would be a transaction that they would pay money to Mary's family to assure the, the, the wedding was going to happen. And often also that, that payment was meant that if Joseph fell off the rails, if this good man somehow went bad and no longer was taking care of Mary, that if they happened to get divorced, his fam, her family would then have the money to care for her. That was the intent. It was essentially, in effect, an insurance policy. He would pay the bride price, and at, at that point, they were legally married. For about a year, the bride would live with her parents while the husband and his family would make preparations in their home. And when I say preparations at their home, I mean actually a building project would take place. It didn't work like it did now where we had full houses and you would move into your own apartment or our own house. No, you would build a room onto your, the, the husband's parents' house and you would move in with your in-laws. It's what we did when Robin and I got married, but we moved in with her parents. Don't recommend it. But that's how they did it then. They would make these preparations in the home to accommodate the addition of a new family unit. In truth, it was an extremely costly proposition for Joseph and his family. I mean, there's payments made on three different levels throughout this. And after those payments are made, they are officially legally married. Then there's the second part. So the first part is the betrothal. The Arusin. The second part is the ceremony or the celebration and the consummation, which all rolled together into one night of celebration. While Joseph and Fam worked to pre prepare the homestead, they would also be planning this massive community event. This community event is called the Mesuin. The Mesuin. And when the time of the wedding would come, Joseph would make his way across town to Mary's house. Now, mind you, we think of this as being, when we think of towns, we think of Seymour. He wasn't going from the, the west end to the east end of Seymour. He was just going a couple of blocks. And, and it wasn't a big city. It wasn't a whole lot of people at the time. And so he would make his way. They'd probably grown up together. And so he makes his way from his parents' house to Mary's house. And on the way, it wasn't like it is now where you sent out invitation cards and you send out an RSVP. You say, hey, the wedding is going to probably be sometime in March. And everybody's like, okay. And so as they marched, marched their way through town, they would say, hey, time for the party. Jump on the train. Here we go. And they would just grab people as they were going. They would make their way over to Mary's house. The crowd would continue to grow. And when they got to Mary's house, they'd be like, Mary, family, come on out. We're going back. It's time to party. And they would grab Mary. They would grab the family. They would head back to Joseph's house. They would show them the new digs. And they would party all night. This big party would go. It was actually several days. This party would take place. It was a very public event. And actually, if you read the Bible, the consummation itself, while it happened behind closed doors, was part of the official formal wedding ceremony. But a whole lot private back in the day. So Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. Before the angel comes 
to him, he finds out that all that he's been working for has been for naught. That he's been faithful, and it tells us that he's been faithful to the law, that Joseph is this good man. He's done the right things, and he's working for this wedding day, looking forward to this celebration, looking forward, let's call it what it is, looking forward to the wedding night. And, and all of a sudden, everything is gone in a flash. And he finds out that Mary is pregnant with a baby that he knows in his heart and mind is not his. Verse 19 tells us that Joseph didn't want to expose Mary to public shame. And, and truly, he didn't want to put, to put her just at, not just at the risk of shame, but also death. So he sought to cancel the relatively private Eurusin, right, the betrothal. People knew about that. It, but to avoid the very public ceremony, the Mesuin, he wanted to avoid this public shame and spectacle of marching out this now pregnant girl downtown for everyone to see. Because very likely, the Mesuin would then become a murder scene. You got to feel a little bit bad for Joseph. Does anyone else, when they read the Christmas story, feel just a tiny smidge bit bad for Joseph? I mean, I know that that sounds wrong. I feel bad for Mary, too, to be completely honest. This was not what she had planned. Actually, it's one of the key songs in the Christmas musical that we wrote because as I continue to consider that story, we're always like, yay for Mary's. Wouldn't that be so exciting to carry Jesus? No, it would not. I mean, we're more accepting today of, of people getting pregnant outside of marriage. But think back, even 10, 15 years ago, that was not looked highly upon. In Mary's day, it was deadly. Now, there's no way that you explained that that Mary comes out looking rosy. Are you going to tell everybody, hey, just wait, 2,000 years from now, I'm going to be boss. And in, there's going to be a scripture passage about me and how saintly and pure. And people are going to argue about whether or not I was sinless. And that day, they'd be like, you nuts, let's find some rocks. Like, not only are you a dirty sinner, you're crazy. Joseph, though, had jumped through all of the religious and legal hoops, been good all year, and still didn't get what he wanted. I'm sure that Joseph didn't have a canceled wedding party. The shame and dishonor of an extramarital pregnancy and a delayed wedding night on his wish list for that first Christmas. But that was the wrapping in which the first Christmas gift came. Understand the reality. What does it say to the community when Joseph owns Mary, this pregnant girl, as his wife? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we know that Mary is pregnant, right? And that people are going to question her integrity and believe that she has been unfaithful if Joseph leaves her. But what happens when Joseph says, okay, I'm going to marry you and I'm going to own your son? What does everybody then think about Noble Joseph. All of a sudden, noble Joseph is ignoble. And Mary's shame is his shame. And the assumption by society would be that that illegitimate baby was Joseph's baby, which is exactly what everybody believed. The wrapping in which Joseph's and Mary's gift came was not Beautiful, if you would. 
See, the truth is God doesn't always give us what we want. It's actually a grace of God that he doesn't give us what we think we want. But when we unwrap the layers of struggle, when we get beneath the difficulty and the undesirable surface of some of the things that we face, we often find that God has given us, given us something so much better than what we asked for, so much better than what we wanted, so much better than what we deserved. That's the truth of Scripture for us, that according to Scripture, we're all on the naughty list. We're all on the naughty list. Joseph and Mary may have been good kids, but neither of them was perfect because no one is without sin. I know that there's lots of questions and theological theories and high theology churches, but there is nothing in the Bible, there is nothing in the text of Scripture that would lead us to believe that Mary was in fact sinless. Not a thing. That, and the idea that, that she and Joseph were not involved sexually after the marriage because she had to maintain her purity does not hold, term, hold, hold, hold serve because they had a bunch of kids. We have history of this. We know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. It's not that them having kids was sinful, but the point is that Mary was as good as she was and as noble as Joseph was. They were still fallible. They were still human. And just like you and I, all of us have our dirt. All of us have our failures. All of us have our faults. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us for the wages of sin is death. Again, if there was truly a nice and a naughty list, only Jesus would make the list of good girls and boys. It would be a list of one. Jesus alone would make the cut. But we often think like Sally. All I want is what I've got coming to me. All I want is my fair share. But is that really what we want? According to scripture, what we've got coming to us what is our fair share? It's nothing good. Our fair share is separation from God and hell. I've actually heard it said by one pastor, and it was shocking and it was jarring, but he was right. You want fair? Then go to hell. Merry Christmas! <laughs> but this is the truth of Scripture. That we don't earn salvation by our, our merits. That Joseph, though he was faithful to the law, was still faulty. That, that as good as we may be, even at our very best, we still fall short 
of God's righteous standards. It's not a very joyful thought. But if God were to weigh our good in one hand and our bad in the other, none of us would desire what we actually deserve. None of us would really want what is fair. None of us would want what we have coming to us. But that's the good news about the coming of Christ. Jesus provides us with what we need to save us from what we deserve. Jesus provides us with what we need to save us from what we deserve. Jesus is the Savior. And in Jesus, we find the only name brand gift that truly matters. Have you ever had a gift that you really, really, really wanted? And and that that gift was a certain name brand gift. Much like in a Christmas story, right? Ralphie wants one thing above all else. What does Ralphie want? A Red Ryder BB gun with Red Ryder BB gun with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time, right? He wants a specific model of the Red Ryder BB gun. I can relate to old Ralphie and all, I can relate to Sally. For me, I, I was. I've always been a collector of things. I know that that surprises all of you as I have a ridiculous collection of Christmas clothing and attire. I have a collection of shoes, but my first love and my first great collection was hats. And there was, when I was growing up and when we were in high school, there was one brand of hat that stood as king above all others. And that brand was Starter. And it had the little S and had the star in it. And, and if you had that brand with the S with the star on it, right above the, the part on the snapback that, that was right there on the top, you had, you had it. And that's all I wanted was this name brand starter Chicago Bulls hat. And I asked everybody for it. Everybody for it. By God's good grace, one of my good friends bought me my starter Chicago Bulls hat, and I thought I had arrived. Do you know where that starter Chicago Bulls hat is today? Anybody? Because I have no clue. (laughs) I don't remember when I got rid of it. I don't remember how I got rid of it. But do you know where you would go to buy a starter hat today? Walmart. Walmart. The name brand, the brand above all other brands, the brand that you had to have is now a Walmart special. I was thinking about that the other day, that, that we, we, in our society, we love these name brands, we love the tags, and, and we love these, these, certain, these, these certain high-end things, but the fact is, no brand, no name stands the test of time. Starter dropped off. I don't even remember how long ago, but I remember finding it in Walmart and thinking, man, how the mighty have fallen. Walmart is great. No offense to anybody. But we know that if it's at Walmart, it has reached a new level, right? Y'all remember when Justice was a premium, high-end girls' clothing store at the mall? You know where Justice is now? Right next to Starter at Walmart. 
We could go on. We could go on to other brands. What about Craftsman, right? Craftsman was the ultimate American brand. Now it is the ultimate Chinese brand. RCA, Reebok, and many other brands that, that were once these important brand names, their quality is now questionable. Very rarely does a name brand hold up over time. Begs the question then, does the name really matter? In the case of Jesus, it absolutely does. Joseph is, in verse 21, Joseph is given the responsibility to name God's son, but not the privilege of picking the name. He had to be named Jesus. Why? Why did Jesus have to be named Jesus? Because the name reveals what the brand is all about. His name is actually Jesus. The, re- the reason there's a J at the front of it is because there was no, there was no vowel leading in Greek. There was no, J, there was no I sound in, in the original Greek language. So to do the sound, we, we, they had to change it. And so we end up with Jesus, which was as, as it continued to go through time. To say Jesus, to start with a vowel, was not something that they did. But the name had meaning in the Hebrew. The name is actually Yeshua or Yehoshua, which actually means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. See, that's the important thing. In Greek, they didn't just try to find the most creative name that they could find. When, when, when Hebrew people and people of that day named their kids, they named them with intent, ultimately hoping that God would bring about what the name said. It was requesting the blessing. In Hebrew specifically, they would give children names that oftentimes pointed to their God. And ask for God to bring about the specific blessing of the name in the life of the child. In this case, however, the angel, angelic declaration and the giving of the name doesn't turn just upward, it also turns inward. Because God would bring salvation not for, but through this child. That you will name him Jesus, why? You'll not name him Jesus because you hope his God saves him. You won't name him Jesus because you hope God blesses him and and keeps him secure in life. No, 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 no. God, in fact, will do the exact opposite. He will not keep him safe, as we're going to see with Simeon, that that ultimately there's going to be a very tragic ending for this child on the surface of it, that this child is going to suffer, that this child is going to be the sacrifice. But the reality is that through his suffering, this child is going to bring about salvation. He will bring about salvation for his people and it will be good news of great joy for all people. We see again a reference to the prophet Isaiah in verse 23. That his name will not just be Jesus, but it will also be Emmanuel, which means God with us. That Jesus, in fact, could bring about salvation from all, for all humanity, not because he was just a good person, but because he was God in flesh. God alone is good. Jesus is not just 100% man. He is also 100% God. The name of Jesus absolutely and without question eternally 
matters. The name of the gift that God has given to us points to the purpose and the production that that gift brings about in the world and in our own hearts and mind. In Jesus, God provides the salvation we need that we could not find through any other source. Tells us that in verse 21. That you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus was born to provide humanity with salvation from the penalty of their sins. It's a constant refrain in the Bible. In Isaiah 43, 11, it says, I am the Lord and there is no savior but me. 1 John 4, 14, it tells us, we have seen and testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. Acts 4.12 tells us salvation exists in no one else. For there is no other name given to mankind by which we must be saved. See, in Jesus, God gave us the highest of all name brands. He gave us the best that he could possibly give us by giving us his very self. And by giving himself to us fully, sacrificially, in order that he might bring about our salvation. And Jesus provides us with what we need to save us from what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus is a gift given by grace alone and received by faith alone. And in him alone do we find what we truly need. At its core, Christmas is about God saving us from receiving what we have coming, from, for, what we have coming to us. See, if the aliens were to come, they would think that, that Christmas is about this culmination of how we've behaved and acted throughout the entirety of a year. I mean, I shudder to think if those aliens watched your life or my life in the entirety of the year, what they would find. I mean, the Bible tells us, you know, in the Christmas narrative, we think that if, if you aren't a good girl, if you aren't a good boy, that you then get coal, right? Somehow you still get something you need, but it's not something you want. Not to be too dark. But according to the Bible, because of the quality of our lives, because of the reality of our great and many failures, we are the coal. We are fuel for the fires of hell in and through our own actions and our own merits. We we don't want our fair share. We don't want what we've got coming to us. But that's the good news of Jesus. Jesus is a gift given by grace alone and received by faith alone. Ephesians 2.8 tells us it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is by definition unearned. It is kindness given because God is good, not because we are good. 
It is goodness given to us in spite of the fact that we are not good enough. The arrival of Jesus on the scene, the birth of the Christ, was the first step of God's plan to bring about his promised salvation for those who believe and trust him. Again, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this salvation is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. It is a gift that is received, not a gift that is earned. We couldn't earn salvation if we tried. Just like that child trying so hard to be good for Christmas, we fall short. Jesus, however, was able to do the work for us, and his birth led to a perfect life that culminated with an undue death to pay for our sins, to make salvation available to those who would accept his grace by faith. Romans 3.23 through 24 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news, but there's good news. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Perhaps we prefer, again, Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. What we've earned is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, we are searching for something good. We are searching for resolution. We are searching for salvation. And Jesus is truly the gift that keeps giving. He is truly the reason for this season, but as we said last week, not just the reason for the Christmas season. He is the reason for joy in every season worth celebrating. He is the gift that makes gratitude possible because he provides us with what we need, not just now, but for eternity. He is the sacrifice that makes Easter significant because death no longer has the final word. And resurrection comes for those that believe. He is the risen one that ruins funerals, making them causes for gladness in our mourning. Jesus is the Savior we need in every way we need saving. He is the greatest gift we could receive. Here's some of what we find that he offers. He offers us grace. The first gift of Christmas is providing a means to not give us what we deserve. To not give us what we have coming or what we have actually earned, but instead providing a way through his goodness to give us what we need and so much more. He provides us salvation. Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice that could appease God and pay the penalty for our sin. As it says in John 1.29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the greatest gift that Jesus gives to us is himself. He's not just our salvation for the future, but he is our ever-present help in time of trouble. He is Emmanuel. 
He is God with us. Both physically and spiritually, Jesus chose to close the distance between God and humanity. He made a way for us to live in the presence of God without fear, both for now and for eternity. Jesus is the Savior the Jews had been promised. He is the Savior the world needs. He is the gift that makes Christmas matter. My prayer is that in this holiday season, this Christmas season, that we would remember the Christ that is at the center of Christmas, that we would remember the greatest gift that was ever given, that we would celebrate the great salvation that our God has made available through the giving of his very self. And I pray that, that though someone may be able to look elsewhere and see all of these other things that could be thought of as the center of Christmas, that as people look at us in the weeks and days ahead, that you and I would make every effort to put Christ in the very center of Christmas, celebrating the salvation that comes by grace through faith, and not just celebrating it for ourselves quietly amongst family and friends, but getting loud, getting audacious, and getting very clear with the world that Jesus is not just your Savior, but the Savior for the world. May we not miss the truth of the season that we celebrate. May we remember God's greatest gift. May we celebrate that God does not give us our fair share, that God does not give us what we have coming to us, but instead came to us to give us himself and to give us salvation through his life and through his death. Father God, we thank you so much for the gift of Jesus Lord, we thank you that as we search for salvation in this broken and very difficult world, Lord, we pray that you would remind us that you are the source of true salvation. That in you alone we find the hope of the ages. That it is in the name of Jesus that we find salvation. It is in Jesus that we find redemption it is in Jesus that we find rescue. It is in Jesus that we find the strength and light to guide us and sustain us through the struggle and darkness of this life. God, may you shine brightly in and through us. May you remind us of the great gift that you are. And may we put you where you belong as the greatest gift that's ever been given, the source of our salvation the source of our life, both now and for eternity. We thank you for the name of Jesus, but not just for the name, for the person that it represents and the purpose of his coming. In Jesus' name, amen.